Hi, this is Amy Crowell with the PolyBio Podcast, and my guest today is David Petrino. He is the Director of Rehabilitation and Innovation for the Mount Sinai Health System and Associate Professor of Rehabilitation and Human Performance at the Icahn School of Medicine in Mount Sinai. He is affiliated with Mount Sinai Center for Post-COVID Care, which launched in May 2020 as the first major multidisciplinary long COVID treatment and research center in the USA. And he has been both tracking symptoms of and treating patients with long COVID. So David, hi, thank you for, for coming on. And um, yeah, we'll take it from there. You know, my first question is how did you get started with this? I mean, you were not working on, you know, infection associated or post, you know, viral patients before COVID started, right? So how did you become one of the people who are working at the first post-COVID care center? Yeah, um, great question. And thanks for having me. It's it's great to be here. Um, so, uh, you know, my role at Mount Sinai uh, as the director of rehab innovation, um, typically the way I explain my role, because not a lot of hospitals have a director of rehabilitation innovation, um, it's my job to rapidly implement new technologies that I think can help patients. It's my job to um, determine and validate new treatment approaches for treating new types of patients and rehabilitating new types of patients. Um, and so you know, prior to all of this, um, a lot of my work was focused on integration of novel technologies like exoskeletal robotics into rehabilitation or remote patient monitoring into complex care cases for um, different patient populations. So in March of 2020, when COVID hit, um, we, my team was really starting to feel pretty stressed out about the fact that People were rushing to emergency departments um, and they were being told, sorry, we know you're sick, but you're not sick enough to be, to be admitted because we're running out of beds. Um, go home and I guess just come back if you're feeling sicker. <laughs> you know, um, no one knew the course of COVID. No one, no one knew what to do. Um, and that was the best that all of the health systems could do when we when things were surging. So our team. Uh, very rapidly took a remote patient monitoring program that we were using for stroke survivors um, that was, uh, you know, previously um, designed to identify blood pressure crises, you know, and identify someone who was at risk of second stroke. We just rejiggered the front end of the app uh, so that it, it was designed now for capturing data from a pulse oximeter and was tracking some of the common symptoms of acute COVID. And we just put it out there and we said, listen, if you call this hotline, someone from Mount Sinai will onboard you and we will track your symptoms. We'll make sure that you're doing okay. And if you aren't doing okay, we'll bring you into the hospital and take care of you. Um, and if you don't have a smartphone, just, just call the hotline and we will call you up every day and we'll collect your data. Just, you know, we just want to make sure that everyone stays safe. And so within a few weeks, we had, you know, thousands of people using the app and um, and our clinicians were tracking everybody, you know, big shout out to like a lot of people who just stepped up and looked after a lot of patients um, in the city. Um, and the app was really effective at managing acute COVID, um, but we also started to identify individuals who had been on the app, you know, like we were like, look, probably a month we'll track you for and then you should be fine. 
uh, and remember this is March of 2020, so famous last words, I guess. Um, by April, May, we started noticing that around 10% of our patients were staying on the app, um, but they, were, they weren't checking any of the boxes anymore. They were just like checking the other box with a symptom reporting and they were just writing in the same sorts of things, you know, extreme fatigue. I feel terrible when I exercise. I, you know, I'm, I've got GI issues. I've got um, heart palpitations. I'm short of breath all the time. Um, you know, all of these new, this new generation of symptoms are emerging. So um, we, you know, quickly pulled together a group of interdisciplinary experts, um, you know, everyone you can think of, nutritionists, rehab docs, strength and conditioning coaches, cardiologists, um, you know, everyone. And uh, we had a quick huddle and we said, well, this kind of looks like dysautonomia. So um, we're going to start treating it like dysautonomia. We had a bunch of really talented autonomic physical therapists um, who typically handle all of our um, uh, concussion cases like post-concussion syndrome. Um, and so we, you know, assigned them to build out a program that was based on existing uh, autonomic rehab paradigms. Um, and we started to treat and we started to make mistakes and have small victories and, you know, learn a lot, keep the patients very much involved in everything that we were doing and ask for a lot of feedback. Um, we immediately contacted the Center for Post-COVID Care as soon as it was launched in, um, I think, either early May or late April of, of 2020. And, and we said to Zijan, who's the director, you know, this is what we're seeing. You should be aware of it. Um, in addition, um, we shouldn't be turning away patients who are antibody negative or PCR negative. So refer the patients over to us. We understand that a we understand that a clinical specialty center has all of these restrictions around who they're allowed to take and who they're not. And sometimes you make those restrictions earlier in the game when you don't know everything. Um, and so until those restrictions can be changed, let's just make sure that people get referred, you know, get referred somewhere. They don't just get sent away. Um, and Zijan is phenomenal. And he was, of course, really supportive of that. So he would just make sure that even if a patient didn't have the criteria to come to the Center for Post-COVID Care, that we would receive an email so that we could coordinate care on the back end. That was the same as the Center for Post-COVID Care. Wow, David, that's very cool to hear. I realized you were doing most of this, but it's interesting. I didn't realize that it started because you were tracking with the COVID patients with an app and just actually just started to document the phenomenon of the persistent symptoms via actual data. It's really exciting to hear that because there's almost, there's been a lack of general data collection on COVID generally, whether it's breakthrough infections or you name it. So when you guys have this concrete data that obviously led you to be able to, to do this, that's, that's wonderful in the first place. And now that you've been treating patients more with the autonomic uh, treatments, with the other stuff that you're doing, what, what have you seen work and what have you iterated into being some of the things that you most focus on with care? Yeah, I, I think, you know, um, <clears throat> the best way that we can, that I, I could describe what we do is um, in the first, you know, the, the first thing that we do with, with all patients who come um, 
into the program is uh, we first try to rule out any any sort of life-threatening organ dysfunction. Um, so, you know, obviously when someone comes to you and they say, listen, I, I'm short of breath all the time. I feel like I'm having heart palpitations. I can't exercise. Um, you know, I'm feeling cognitive issues. I've got brain fog. Um, you know, this all sounds really familiar to me now as, as like someone who sees a lot of long COVID patients, but also, you know, we got to make sure we clear the lungs. We got to make sure we clear the heart. We got to make sure we clear the brain. Um, and so, you know, first step, get an appointment with one of our physiatrists who is managing, uh, who are managing long COVID cases, clear all of the scary things, clear all of the things that are life-threatening in the moment. Um, and, um, and once, you know, once we've cleared those things, that's when we, we move into the management process. I, I think it's really important to, you know, to point out that so many long COVID patients, not all, but, but many long COVID patients are coming back from a full battery of tests with, within normal limits, you know, kind of stamped all over the, the test results. Um, that should be the beginning of the rehab process, not the end of the rehab process. Um, and it's crazy to me how many people are being told, great news, everything came back normal, go home. Um, I, I, I can't understand how that is a standard of care that anyone could be proud of. Um, so, you know, that, so that's how we view it. We, we view it as, okay, everything's come back normal, let's get to work. Um, so the first thing is really providing patients with very specific content on how they can control symptom flares in their own life. Um, you know, getting a sense of what is flaring them up. You know, it might be jumping into a hot shower without first, you know, starting the water at a low level and and ramp, you know, ramping up the heat to a desired temperature afterwards because jumping into a hot shower will cause an autonomic reaction, which will you know, um, often in, in some cases cause a symptom flare. Eating a big meal is another big trigger. Um, forgetting to adequately hydrate um, in the day. You know, really just picking through the patient's day, understanding what triggers them, what doesn't, giving them strategies, and most importantly, giving them rationale for why they're feeling the way they're feeling. Um, you know, so, you know, so that they can understand because a symptom flare is an incredibly frightening thing to go through, but it's a lot less frightening when you can say, oh, this is happening because I ate a big meal, my stomach stretched, it's causing an autonomic reaction. I feel like I'm gonna faint right now, but it's going to pass. It doesn't mean that I'm getting worse. It doesn't, you know, it just means that I, I know what I triggered and now I know to avoid this and, you know, I can do things differently and and so on and so forth. So getting that level of understanding going, providing education about hydration and salt supplementation if, if necessary, you know, um, uh, tights that can squeeze the legs and manage blood pressure regulation if, if blood pressure regulation in positional changes is an issue for the patient population, uh, for the particular patient. Um, and, um, and also medication, you know, sometimes medication is helpful education around caffeine, which is really, I got to tell you, it's 50-50. <laughs> it's Some people need it for energy. 
other people, it, it makes their arrhythmias go crazy and um, really causes symptom flares. So, you know, it, it's person by person. So a lot of this stuff is, is there's no cookie cutter generic. You need to sit down with your patient, get to know them and give them strategies for everything that is, is, um, is causing trouble for them. But really working with uh, alpha physiatrists on that, that back and forth, education around pacing so that people can, you know, understand that they have energy windows throughout the day and their fatigue is best managed when they do all of the hard stuff within the energy windows um, and, you know, try to do a lot, you know, rest, build in lots of resting and try to do, you know, the, the littler things when, when they're outside of their energy windows. So lots and lots of conversations back and forth, learning from one another. It's not unidirectional education. It is, you know, okay, that's something I've not heard about. Let me go and read about it. You know, it's okay for the physician to say, I don't know. Um, you know, these are, these are things that we should be comfortable saying as clinicians that um, I, I've not heard about that. Let me consult with a colleague and see if there's something we can do. Some of these symptoms are really weird. You know, everyone can acknowledge that. It's weird for your left foot to suddenly turn blue um, and tingle, you know, um, but it's happening and we shouldn't be discounting those things. So, um, so that's, you know, our first phase is stabilize, stabilize. Um, then we move into prehab. Um, we've been doing a lot of work with uh, breathwork coaches. Um, a lot of our patients have really experienced benefit from that. Um, we noticed that a lot of our patients were hypocapnic, meaning that when they were sitting at rest and we used a device called a capnograph to look at their level of CO2 carbon dioxide that they were breathing out, um, it was lower than normal. Um, it was not low to a point that I would call dangerously low, but it was certainly abnormally low um, and and so you know at, we should have we should have an end tidal co2 level of around 35 to 45 millimeters of mercury what we were seeing in this cohort was around 25 to 30 was was the average range so you know it, it's it's low and so um, the breathwork team at stasis that we partnered up with they were providing breathwork protocols that um, uh, that worked to increase uh, CO2 tolerance and increase levels of CO2. Um, I think it's also important, you know, for clinicians that might be listening to this, um, CO2 was low in the absence of an elevated respiratory rate. So patients weren't breathing faster. Often that's the first thing you think of, oh, low CO2, you're panting. No, their, their respiratory rate was within normal limits, if a little low, actually. But um, but their CO2 levels were, were quite low. So although we don't quite know the mechanism why, we, we figured, okay, let's, let's see if breathwork treats it. And in, in most cases, we see that it eases symptoms. Um, and that was really helpful as a prehab step because it allows patients to, um, first, we've stabilized the symptoms. They, they don't, you know, the, the goal of the first phase is Let's just help you feel less blindsided when an attack of symptoms happens. Um, you can explain you you can at least explain why this is happening to you. You know, then step two is like let's get you to a point where you feel like you can control some of your symptom flares when they're occurring through an intervention, and you feel a bit more like you're able to start rehabilitation. 
Um, and then we move into the rehab phase. So that is basically, you know, we, we followed on from existing autonomic rehab protocols, but we noticed that patients were far too debilitated and far too prone to post-exertional symptom exacerbation for us to just jump straight into something like the Levine protocol, which is, you know, really well published as a, a dysautonomia intervention. Um, we had to start much, much lighter. So most patients start laying flat on their back, gentle movements of their, their legs, um, gentle movements of their arms. Uh, heart rate is too variable for us to use heart rate as a parameter to guide uh, exercise intensity. So we use the Borg scale, which is perceived exertion. The patient tells you how hard they're working and we keep them at the very low end. So, you know, one or two on a scale out of 10 of how hard you're working. So, um, and uh, with the autonomic rehab, what we do is we gradually challenge the autonomic nervous system more and more with very targeted, very specific exercises. Um, and what we've seen in our team is that um, over about 90 days of rehab, where we're seeing patients usually twice per week, but they're doing exercises every single day, uh, we get patients to a point where they can be discharged. Some of them are still symptomatic. So some of them still have symptoms, but they're like, I can like get on a treadmill now and exercise at a certain heart rate. I got, I got this from here, you know, like um, uh, others, you know, others are, are better and they're saying that they feel like they did pre-COVID and thank you very much. Um, you know, and, and a small percentage, but a notable percentage aren't better. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we're working on in many of the trials that we're trying to conduct right now is to understand the non-responders. Why aren't they responding? What's going on? Um, and I think it's also worth mentioning that we've had, you know, so far out of, uh, I'm looking at data from, you know, 400 or so patients that have been discharged. Um, we've had a dozen or so who have relapsed, um, you know, many months after being discharged from care. And that is something that we're keeping an eye on because, you know, the big question on everyone's mind is, is this a chronic condition that will persist that we can, we can treat with things like autonomic rehabilitation. We can treat the symptoms, but there is an underlying cause that will chronically persist and needs to be managed. Um, and um, and so I think that, you know, these relapses are, are really um, troubling, you know, when we think about that through that lens. Um, I will say on the, on the flip side, um, they relapse, they come back to us and we put them through the program, they work the program and they're better again. So it, it, it's, um, it's encouraging to see that they're responding. But at this point, what I think we can say is that this, I feel like I've been talking forever, but this rehab paradigm that I've outlaid, it does a good job of easing and then managing symptoms. I don't think we're curing anything. Um, and that's why we need to do the molecular work. That's why we need to do the pathophysiology work to understand what's happening to the body. David, yes. I mean, that makes a huge amount of sense to me. You've been just extremely proactive on just setting up a system in which these very basic things that can just be actionably done to patients are, are, are offered to them and done in a way, especially where the patient's feedback is incorporated, where you're able to work on what sounds like a personalized level with patients, which is amazing. Um, I completely agree that, you know, 
I can't imagine how you wouldn't at least start with breathing exercises with some of the compression socks, these just low hanging fruit things that you can do that seem like they would benefit the majority of patients, whether or not, like you said, it's getting to the full root cause is a different question, but can you provide people with the ability to just get back a little bit more to their lives to function a slight bit at, at the very least, it's, it's really amazing. And it also just strikes me, you know, it's funny when you say that it's okay to say as a, as a physician or, or as a PhD that we don't know everything that's going on. I mean, it would just surprise me that anyone would think that they would. I mean, SARS-CoV-2 is a new virus. There's a, this is a pandemic of a novel pathogen. How would we possibly know what it couldn't, you know, could not do fully right in a, in a setting? So I think the approach that you've taken to be, you know, a somewhat humble in terms of what can happen to these patients and to learn as you go along is, is, is excellent. So I mean, that's a very cool approach, you know, later, I'm, you know, extrapolating your approach to the average physician sounds difficult because of the level of personalized intervention. So that might be a challenge. But before I go there, I guess I do want to ask, what are you doing then in terms of research collaborations or work to better understand, like you said, some of the possible other root cause drivers of the symptoms? Yeah. Um, one of the things that we're uh, currently doing right now is uh, we've got this great collaboration with Akiko Iwasaki out at Yale University. Uh, she is just mind-blowingly smart um, immunologist. And um, we've been trying to understand, you know, if there are immune underpinnings to long COVID and if so, what are those, you know, immune underpinnings that are going on? Um, and Akiko has been studying long COVID patients for quite some time. Um, and I think that, um, you know, broadly speaking, there's a handful of, you know, uh, competing theories about what's going on. Um, I think that, I think that honestly, it's probably all of them, <laughs> all of them are happening, um, you know, and that's it. But, um, uh, but um, yeah, there, there's, you know, the theory of viral persistence. Um, and so we're, um, you know, we're, we're collaborating with a number of different um, uh, clinicians there, um, some, some with the Kikos group, some here at Mount Sinai, to try and understand, um, you know, the, the, if there are pockets of virus in, in many of these patients that could be causing ongoing symptoms. Um, and or you know not causing ongoing symptoms because you know it, it's normal for some sometimes for there to be viral persistence for a little while it's just that we're looking for it now so we're seeing it um so understanding does it exist and does it correlate with symptoms versus what's happening on an immunological basis and is that correlating with symptoms um uh versus uh you know is this just um the immune response initially caused some damage to an important nerve like the vagus nerve. And now you have dysautonomia that we just need to rehabilitate um, and then you'll be okay. So those are kind of the, the things that we're juggling. And uh, we hope that we'll have some really good results to publish uh, in the next couple of months actually um, around some of the immune underpinnings um, of, of what's going on. Um, and in addition, we're also working with some um, a great cardiologist, Amy uh, Kontrovich, here at um, uh, here at Mount Sinai. She she's actually been working, you know, tirelessly with the EDS community, um, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome community, for 
many years. Um, and so clearly there are some um, similarities that we can learn from between the two communities. And um, we've, we've been doing a lot of cardiac imaging on this cohort, um, seeing if there are initially some features of cardiac morph morphology that can, you know, clue us in on objectively what does a long COVID patient look like, um, all the way through to, um, you know, understanding if cardiac morphology changes as symptoms recede as patients are engaging in our rehab program, similar to what, you know, some of the stuff that Levine did when he was looking at his own protocol for dysautonomia. Um, so uh, we're, we're making some interesting findings there as well um, that will, I think, highlight a lot of similarities and also a lot of differences between a long COVID cohort and a traditional traditional dysautonomia cohort. It's really cool. Yeah, I do think a mix of imaging, you know, from imaging, from neuroimaging to cardiac imaging, that's obviously to me the SARS-CoV-2 infects so many body sites, so many tissue types that one of the struggles in this is how do you understand what's happening in the body of the patient beyond just the blood sometimes or beyond just that. So imaging to try to understand, you know, what's happening with internal organs, that's obviously really interesting. And, you know, in terms of the viral persistence, you know, that's, that's one of my favorite, uh, that's what I look into often, but, you know, I think you have the right idea there, which is it's not just the presence or absence of the virus necessarily in patients' tissues or in reservoir. It's also what the virus may be doing if it's there, it's activity. I think that's a really a trend you'll see in related fields that are tying infection to, you name it, from Alzheimer's to Parkinson's. It's the activity of the pathogen, sometimes the proteins, whatever it's creating, that you have to also measure and understand if that if that's happening as well, right? So it seems like you have a, a pretty good grasp of the trends, and of course the immune system data and, and Akiko being involved in that. I look forward to seeing what you guys are finding. So that's cool. Um, you know, going back then, I guess to I wanted to discuss a little bit more about what you, what you mentioned about the pacing with patients with this with long COVID. Um, you know. Overall, I can understand how when a clinician first sees a patient like this on standard blood work, there's not much that seems wrong. You know, overall, it just seems like, hey, look, you got to get jumped back in. You got to get back up. You know, you don't feel well that they would just recommend exercise. I can understand why that would be the case, but it isn't really. You mentioned post-exertional malaise, which is also a common symptom of another diagnosis, myalgic encephalomyelitis, MECFS, that I've worked to study for several years now in which patients, you know, they exercise actually provokes their symptoms. And so they have to be very careful in the way that they exert themselves. And is that, you've seen that and, and that's part of how you pace? Could you just go into that a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, um, we, we see a lot of symptom provocation and exacerbation in response to exercise. So much so that, you know, in our training, um, because we've trained around 700 clinicians now around the country on, you know, just the fundamentals of autonomic rehabilitation, um, you know, we, we point out that, like, you know, even, even because everyone wants functional testing, they want to say, like, how will I know my patient is getting better? And even something as simple as the six-minute walk test, which is a self-paced walk down the hall for six minutes, um, and the clinician just tracks over the six minute period how long the patient walked. Um, that we, we have to tell 
clinicians that that is too high level of exertion for most of the patients that we see. And we'll often get, you know, the, the, the cowboy, you know, no, no, I did it with all my patients and they were fine. I was like, yeah, they completed the test, right? Yeah, no problems, no problems completing the test. I was like, did you check in on them two days later? No, why would I do that? <laughs> yeah, because, you've, because I'm ex expecting that you have a fundamental understanding of the literature for the condition that you're treating. Um, and, and you understand that, you know, what, when we talk about post-exertional symptoms, that's different from exercise intolerance, which is different from fatigue, you know? Um, and so with post-exertional symptoms, you need to be tracking your patient for up to two days. You know, some patients will even say three days um, because that's when things arise. So um, yeah, this idea of you're deconditioned, we just need to push you through uh, with, with exercise is a is a disaster. Um, it's, again, it's, it's um, these patients, it, it's inappropriate because these patients don't look like patients in need of pulmonary rehabilitation or cardiac rehabilitation. Their heart, their heart is fine. It's within normal limits. Their lungs are fine within normal limits. They don't have pulmonary function tests that look out of order. So why would you, you know, why would you refer them on for what looks like pulmonary rehabilitation? They're reporting symptoms that are consistent with dysautonomia. There's 20 plus years of literature saying that if you work patients too hard in dysautonomia, they will worsen. If you work, if you exercise patients too hard in ME-CFS, they will worsen. Of course, ME-CFS has had a lot more controversy than dysautonomia around the, the point of exercise, unfortunately, because of bad science and, you know, and the dissemination of bad science. But the reality is, you know, hopefully um, there are enough people, there are enough patients speaking up now that these doctors will listen when they're told exercise, you know, exercise as though this patient is deconditioned is not the answer. Uh, I was incredibly discouraged to see the NIH funding, um, you know, high intensity in interval training for long COVID patients. Now, granted, it was for a subset of long COVID patients that had PICS, post-ICU syndrome, but it, I, I've seen some of these patients, and if anything, you need to be even more careful um, with, with this patient population. Um, and so I think that we have a lot of work to do in terms of changing the culture um, from, from the top level. I, I think that all of these patient-led groups have been doing a phenomenal job of being heard. I think it's time for them to sit in on NIH study sections and have a voice because clearly um, when, when I see HIT training being recommended as a clinical trial um, for long COVID patients, I see the potential for harm. Um, and I know for a fact that that grant would not have been funded if there was a patient representative sitting in the room saying, Hi guys, that's gonna that's gonna kill some people. Like, don't do that. Um, so, um, you know, that's you know that's a meandering <laughs> thought no, process. No, it's for extremely fatigue. relevant because with MECFS, as we've explained that we've already worked on, 
all of us researchers who've already worked on patients with that diagnosis know that this is, it, it confuses it, the community. It takes away from valuable time that can be spent on, on research and discussion on what actually matters. In other words, this idea that we're just gonna have patients exercise without really reading. Like you said, there's existing literature on this. There have been plenty, you know, in, in MECFS, there's a trial called the PACE trial that, that, that's concluded that patients could benefit from graded exercise, but there are many faults with that study. I have signed many letters you know, that have pointed out the faults with that study. So have many other scientists. We've been doing this for years. And part of that is that we're not listening to patients enough, like you said. You know, patient reported feedback should be a high level of evidence. Right now in evidence-based medicine, it's it's low on the evidence pyramid, which I've always disliked. I think patient reported feedback should really be one of the primary sources for hypothesis and the research and clinical work that we conduct. And the fact that your group is doing that, it's an exemplary example of how this can work. And I agree that institutions like the NIH or whoever that are doing this and probably coming up with a more conservative or standard approach at the beginning, I hope they're receptive to listening to feedback from groups like yours over time to adjust the programs and things that they're funding. Because I agree, just, you know, we should have learned by now that probably just making someone exercise is, is not alone without thinking through the way that you approach it is does not work so yeah that's interesting then um overall then you know if you were going to give advice to other clinicians which it seems you said you're already training other clinicians on this uh, if you are doing that how are you doing that and also what would be sort of the primary advice that you give to other clinicians getting into this especially clinicians that can only see patients for shorter periods of time what would be the key things that you think they should focus on yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, the the first is is a collaborative approach. So really focusing on, you know, and, and this this is always said, but it's never done. But focusing on patients being partners as opposed to this sort of like I'm up here on on my throne of knowledge and you're going to listen to me. Um, uh, that that doesn't work here because we we have equal knowledge and and these patients who are coming in are incredibly well read they're thoughtful they're going through a lot of different things so you know um, our role is to be you know facilitators of good knowledge and you know and a and a filter a scientific filter for bad knowledge um, because you know, that's what our training allows us to do. It allows us to say, even though I'm still learning, I can, I can tell you that this study that you've just brought me saying, you know, take ivermectin for long COVID has flaws in it. And so let's, let's walk through the flaws and let's have, you know, so that collaborative approach really helps to build trust. It really helps to, um, you know, identify to the patient that some and signal to the patient that someone is on their side, um, and it opens the opens the door to, you know, things being, it's okay for you to disagree on on a point. You know, for you to say I think you should do this, and the patient to say this is making me feel terrible. Oh, okay, well let's let's look into it. So getting that collaborative approach, building trust, um, trust is going to be really important because you're probably going to flare a patient and they've got to trust you enough to come back. Otherwise they're just going to drop off and not come back and sort of just live in misery with their symptoms. Um, 
and and that's what we need to avoid. We need to upfront be vulnerable as clinicians, be humble, um, leave check the ego at the door, and just say like, we don't know how this is going to go, you know. At, but I am pretty sure that you know you're going to get flared, um, it, even it, you know even if it's not from the specific intervention that I'm prescribing, it could be from the subway trip to my clinic, you know, because let's not forget that that's exertion and that can be stressful and that can cause um, symptom flaring, which is why we do a lot of at-home therapy because, you know, what's the point of, what is the point of gently monitoring um, exercise if, um, if you then say, hey, jump on the subway and run up the stairs and see what you can do so um yeah so so I, I think that that would be the first piece of advice um is, is just really to um you know come in and um and, and build a collaboration a collaborative environment um the you know everything has to be patient-centric um there's no you know i i hear so many times what's the algorithm um I don't know, and this is this was not a thing in Australia. I don't know why American doctors use the term algorithm like this. I think it, <laughs> I think it makes them feel smarter for just saying what is a checklist of things that I can tick off to treat, you know, to treat patients in a cookie cutter way, it, because it's not an algorithm. It's a list um, that they want. They just want to be like, patient A shows up, so I give drug B, and you know, follow up C and then I drop billing codes D and then I'm done. Um, no, it's not gonna be that way here. Um, you need to be patient centric. Um, and then I think the other thing is, um, the other piece of advice that I give a lot is, you know, um, check your ego um, in terms of these are difficult patients, complex patients, there are going to be days where you dread seeing them personally because there is nothing harder for a clinician than to see your patient not making progress. That it's really hard, it drains you, you know? Um, and what you need to do as a clinician is immediately, you know, like I, I've, I've experienced this as a clinician myself. Um, I think every clinician can somewhat resonate with this. You have a challenging patient that isn't getting better, you know, and your ego tells you, blame the patient. You know, it's it's like, tell them it's their fault. They're not doing their exercises. They're not, you know, this is a novel condition. This is this is all discovery. We don't know what's happening. So keep keep working the problem. Don't don't close off emotionally to your patient because it's hard to see them, because it's hard to see that they're not making progress. That that's really hard for them as well. That's not what they're choosing. Um, and and so, you know, we need to just stay the course, hold fast, work with the patient, um, regulate all those negative emotions of like, why isn't this person getting better? I, I don't know what to say. You know, like a lot of clinicians are panicking. You know, it's like six weeks, no progress. You know, go back to basics, get fresh eyes on the problem, but don't abandon the patient and, you know, uh, and give in to the easy, you know, the easy option, which is like, oh, I'll refer you off to psych or, you know, throw throw medications at the problem or just stop, you know, discharge the patient from your care that, um, that that's not helping anybody. So, yeah.
Yeah, I totally agree with that. You know, and in my experience, even coming from MECFS patients and even patients with complications post-treatment Lyme issues, they're some of the most motivated, determined patients I've ever met. They really usually, I mean, when you look and like you said, they they have the formed organizations, they have formed groups, they are really trying. And so that is one of the things that I do think clinicians exactly need to recognize is that you know, the patients are, are often incredibly motivated. If they're not able to do well, then, then it's, you know, it's also time to evaluate the protocols and treatments as well. And in addition to just the patient. So I think you made a really good point on that. Yeah. So, you know, and overall, I guess I can't help it. You know, there is this, you know, trend as well, in which sometimes these patients are referred to just psychiatric care, just, you know, treated with as if the, the condition might be psychosomatic, which has, a, a again, a very, you know, not exciting history, especially because these conditions sometimes affect, impact women, they're sometimes more female patients than male patients, which doesn't seem to help in the past with MECFS. There have been even outbreaks of the disease that were deemed hysteria because women got ill. So we sometimes see these patients only referred to psych, psych, psychiatric care. And have you seen that? And if that, if that's the case, how do we how do we fix that a little bit? Yeah, I, I certainly have seen that. I mean, this is also common in dysautonomia as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it 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 sounds like panic attacks, and nothing's showing up. On, you're having panic attacks, you know. Um, off you go to psych. Um, so I, I think we certainly see that. I think that um, I think we need to fix it because um, there are aspects of psychological care that are incredibly helpful for long COVID patients. You know, so just for a start, working with a good neuropsychologist for cognitive rehabilitation is really valuable. Brain fog is one of the most common symptoms of long COVID. And good neuropsychologists can provide evidence-based ways to manage cognitive impairment. So, you know, similar to pacing to help plan your day around some of the, some of the strongest deficits that are um, impacting you, as well as, you know, provide exercises that can help with the cognitive impairment. So, so neuropsychology in that case can be really effective in assisting patients with their cognitive um, symptoms. In addition, you know, when we think about the mind-body connection um, and we think about um, the way that dysautonomia attacks can occur, you know, one of the things that many of my patients are really, um, I, I don't know, I, I feel, feel relieved to hear is, yes, absolutely strong emotion can trigger a dysautonomia attack. Now that doesn't mean it's psychosomatic, that means that is basic physiology. You know, you get angry, your heart rate races, um, and your autonomic nervous system takes over, and you, you your sympathetic nervous system kicks in, um, which causes an attack of dysautonomia. Now, um, that is good physiology. Now, what what might that mean? That if if strong emotions are constantly triggering your symptoms it might be appropriate to say, listen, this is not the underlying cause, but you, we need to give you some emotion regulation strategies so that when you're feeling angry, you can, you can, re, you, you can use CBT techniques to reframe or reappraise what's going on, bring your emotions down so that you don't trigger an attack when you're trying to 
conduct a business call or you're trying to, you know, to, to do these things. And I understand that you didn't need this level of emotion regulation pre-illness, but now you do because it's triggering symptoms. And these symptoms are not psychosomatic. There's a good physiological reason for why they're happening, but we need to address how to manage these strong emotions when, you know, when they're overwhelming you and causing an attack. So it's a, it's a real shame because so many people, so many of our patients benefit from these services, but there's a real stigma now of like, why are you sending me to psych? Is it, is it because you don't believe me? Um, and we've got to break that because psychology can be really effective, um, a, a really effective symptom management tool for a lot of patients. Um, and of course, you know, psychiatry, uh, I'm, I'm learning a little bit more about this now, but you know, this neuroinflammation, neuroimmune um, complicated issue of um, patients experiencing, this is, I, I would say, you know, one to 2% of, you know, I've, I've, we, we've managed the care of over 1600 patients at this stage with long COVID. And I would say that I've only seen this in five to 10 of, of that group. Um, but like pr proper symptoms of psychosis, um, severe psychotic episodes um, that when they had no prior history of, of mental health issues, you know, previously healthy, no, nothing in their record ever. Um, and I think that neuroinflammation and, and a neuroimmune sequelae uh, are to blame here, but certainly we need psychiatry uh, to be tagged in at that point. Um, and um, and we, we need more, there, there's, I've been Googling and cold emailing and there's not a lot of neuroinflammation psychiatry specialists out there, but I think we're gonna need more. I need to talk to my colleague, Mike Benaziker. He's a neuroinflammation specialist that has actually a psych background that has transitioned to working on these conditions. So I'll hook you guys up more. But yeah, I mean, as for some feedback, but overall, David, again, what you're saying really resonates with me. First of all, you know, we know on the microbiology, virology side of it, this, this, the pathogens can drive psychiatric symptoms. So take toxoplasma, for example, it's a parasite that infects the central nervous system of, of some, I think 11% of the US population harbors latent toxoplasma in the central nervous system. And that parasite can drive complete psychiatric symptoms. So we understand this. So there's plenty of evidence that even a virus or bacterial pathogen can drive those kinds of symptoms in the first place. But beyond that, what I really like is, and this is what I've always wanted for ME-CFS and related diagnoses too, is that of course, when, when there's a cancer patient, for example, we offer them, we, we treat the cancer, the tumor, but we also offer them, you know, CBT or care for, you know, psychiatric, it's a, it's a difficult thing to be dealing with a new difficult illness. And so what we need is we need to integrate the the psychological or psychiatric care or psychological care into these cases, but just intelligently. It's not the only thing we do where we don't throw patients, you know, just discount them into that. We think about how to do it as part of a comprehensive program so that we can maximize the impact, you know, and I think that's the same with when you talk about the exercise or the therapy-based approaches, you know, it, it's not just well, no exercise, it, you know, it's like, maybe we can do this in a, in a, in a way with a program, what understanding the, the sets of symptoms, and we can come up with a compromise in these topics, because so far with any sniffs, it's been like, 
I understand why the patients are so scared of exercise and psychiatric care because that's all they get and their feedback isn't incorporated. So over time, we could better, like you're doing, just bring these things in, but with, with, with a purpose, with an understanding of the, of the patient in a more robust capacity. So that's, that's great. Well, David, I mean, you are, you guys are on fire over there. I'm so glad it, it really actually just helps me feel better to know that, that you are running this center and that you are influencing other cl- clinicians and people who are, who are treating these patients. Um, I look forward to hopefully, you know, continuing to, to even maybe do some work with your group. Who knows as things come up and, um, that's it. Do you have any, you know, I guess it's time to go, but do you have any last thoughts before we go? No, I think we've, we've covered a lot today. So that's great. Awesome. All right. Well, keep up the good work, David, and we will be in touch. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks.